Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today I have with me in the studio Judy Ann Smith, who is the executive director of the Daniel Hanley Center for Health Leadership here in Maine. Thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. So you and I are we're neighbors. Our kids went to school together. I went to the Hanley Institute. So there's a lot of crossovers. Uh, but I don't think I knew just how professionally impressive you were until I saw you in action as one of the people leading this course that I took back, I guess it was a year and a half ago now. Yeah, so, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that you are trained as an attorney, but you haven't taken a straight path. No, definitely not a straight path. And I have only practiced as an attorney for a little over a year back in Boston, right after I got out of law school. Um, and it was not the experience I had anticipated. And let's just say I was the only female attorney at an all-male construction firm. Um, and some of the things that went on at the firm just were made me very uncomfortable. Um, and so once we decided, my husband and I decided we wanted to move out of state and buy property and start a family, we started looking around and we looked at Vermont and we looked at Maine, um, Maine One. And I started my first job uh, in what was um, state government uh, as the supervisor of elections under the Secretary of State Bill Diamond uh, as my first main job. And uh, I never looked back. I never went back to for-profit or, um, you know, money was not what I was after. I was after making a difference and being challenged. And the law degree opened a lot of doors for me, but I never needed to practice ever again. <laughs> Well, it sounds like for you, that wasn't a bad thing. No, it wasn't at all. I've had great opportunities. I, my, my biggest career move was to move to Spurwink, which is a mental health agency. I like to say I grew up at Spurwink. Um, I spent 18 years there until I took the current gig, and I loved it there. Um, just an amazing organization doing amazing work all over the state, the largest mental health agency out there working with toddlers and children and adults, all with mental challenges, mental health challenges, intellectual disabilities, autism, um, just a great organization. But at some point I took the course, the leadership course at Hanley, and I decided I needed to do something like that. And um, once I took the course, it really changed me as to what I wanted to do. And um, I think I just had lots of uh, growth at Spurwing. I kept having different leadership roles there. Um, but then I wanted a change in something different. And when the role opened up at the Hanley Center, the then executive director was a mentor of mine and a friend. And I found out that he was retiring. I put my name in the hat. And um, I feel really fortunate to have been chosen for the job. It's been it's been really fun. You also spent time on the school board here in Yarmouth. I did. I did two terms as an elected member of the school committee. And um, that was also great. I got to meet a lot of people. When you're on school committee, you know a lot of people in town. Um, when I stepped off school committee, it was like I moved into a closet um, because I didn't, <laughs> you're just not in on the in stuff anymore. Um, but it was really fun. We had a lot of great times. We had a lot of challenges. We had a lot of winning teams in Yarmouth, um, a lot of accolades for the schools, and we did a lot of hard work. Um, the school committee probably doesn't get enough credit for how much time and effort they put in. Um, and uh, I really loved those years. And I think I want to go back into some form of service like that in the future. I just don't know what or when. So you're waiting for the, you're waiting for the call. 
waiting for the call and the time to be able to do it. My current job um, keeps me busy in the evenings as well as the days, as well as the weekends at times. And so it's really hard to try to fit in any other kind of volunteer work. It is true that when I reach out to you, I'm apt to hear from you anytime, day or night. You're very (laughs) responsive. And so whether it's by you know, text message or whether it's by email, you're right there, you're on top of it. So I would think that level of responsiveness and also just meetings and reaching out to people that would require a lot of on time. It is a lot of on time. And you know what, if you don't respond in the moment, you lose the opportunity as well as things build up and then you're inundated. So I prefer to just get things taken care of when they come in as much as I can. Yeah, I think that's that's sort of my approach as well. And, you know, I think some people have argued, you know, maybe we're a little bit too on or, you know, we should block our schedules and only respond between, you know, six and eight at night. But I feel the way that you do. Like, I mean, we're it's, it's, if you can keep your asynchronous communication somewhat synchronous, then you can really calm things down pretty yeah. significantly. If, yeah. you, if you let people sit with kind of the story in their mind that they've created good or bad, sometimes it can go in a direction that really you don't, is is probably not optimal. Agreed. Agreed. You know, my youngest daughter used to hide my phone after hours all the time and on the weekends because she knew, she knew that if something came in, I'd be on my phone trying to respond for work. Even when I was at Spurwink, it was the same thing. It was a seven day job. I was an administrator, but there were no weekends where I wasn't working. And um, she used to hide it all the time. I used to be like, give me my phone back. This something, I heard something come in. (laughs) Give me the phone back. (laughs) Well, and, and don't you think that that is one of the hard lessons that people eventually learn is that once you move into a leadership position, there's not really an, an off button. No, not at all. That is a big lesson no one tells you about, for sure, for sure. Um, but, you know, you have to have your balance, too. And so those were really strong messages from my daughter. And I tried hard to, you know, make sure I was focusing on my family. I have three kids. <laughs> had to focus on them as much as, you know, they needed me to be focused. Um, so it, you always feel like you did it wrong or maybe you didn't do it right enough, but you do your best in the moment and that's all, that's all we can do. Yeah. And, and to be clear, I mean, I go to bed early and I wake up early. I don't keep my phone right next to me. I, I put it outside my room. I'm not listening continually to text messages unless I'm on, I'm actually on call. So yes, I agree with you. There is a balance and there is what we're role modeling for our kids and being on constantly does have a toll. So it's, it's a kind of a funny place to try to negotiate, I think. For sure. For sure. So tell me about the Hanley Institute. I know my experience, but yours is very different because my program was specific to physicians and I was with a physician cohort and we met for, I think it was around nine months over the course of a year. We had in-person sessions. It was COVID was still going on. So I think there was an opportunity to do some remote, but really we were in person, Mm -hmm. I think the vast majority of the time. Um, But you have multiple different courses that you run at the Hanley Center. Yeah. So the Hanley Center is a 501c3 nonprofit. It's actually now it's not its own 501c3 anymore. I I have to keep reminding myself, January 1, we merged to be part of a different 501c3 called the Maine Medical Education Trust. Um, And so this is an organization that um, has been around for a long time. It's an arm of the MMA, the Maine Medical Association. Um, But we are still... uh, 
operating independently from that organization in terms of how we do our operations, how we do our budgeting, and we're running all the same programs. So nothing's really shifted on our end, which is why sometimes I forget to say it. <laughs> I can't say anymore we're an independent 501c3. Um, but we, we have been around for about 20 years. We're founded um, to carry out the legacy of Dr. Dan Hanley, who was a, a extremely well-known um, and well-appreciated physician leader in Maine. Um, and what we do is run leadership development courses. That's how we started. We started by acknowledging fantastic leaders in healthcare in Maine through awards. And at some point, a board of directors was formed and it was determined that there was really a a lack of leadership development availability or opportunities for doctors. And so a couple of different levels of courses were created, a foundational and an advanced course. You took the advanced course for physicians. But now we, and we also have an interprofessional course, which is the one I took. Um, so I'm a closet lawyer who was doing policy work and lobbying at the State House for Spurwink, but I took the course then. And um, it was a fantastic experience, life-changing for me and how I thought about myself and my leadership. So we run that one. It's entering its 17th year, the HLD course. It's called Health Leadership Development HLD. The physician courses, the Pelly Advanced course, we're recruiting for that right now. It's going into its eighth session. Um, and we're just launching some other new exciting things, our second version of a Women in Health Leadership Seminar Series. So women leaders coming together to network and learn together over three sessions. We have a new nursing curriculum that we just put together with all the chief nursing officers, a bunch of them from the state got together and we developed a curriculum together. That's starting up at the end of November for um, emerging nurse leaders. Um, we have a course that's also going to be starting up just for rural providers, um, really specialized in what they need to learn about. Maine's so rural, right? So many doctors and so many providers out there that need different skills around community and coalition building and um, network and community engagement and advocacy. So different skills, um, a different course. Uh, we also run an internship program because Dr. Dan, um, he was the college physician at Bowdoin College for about 34 years. And as such, he really cared about undergrads. So we have an undergraduate internship program we run every summer. We have about 22 interns this summer. We're going to have a leadership day up at Bowdoin College's um, Coastal Center next Wednesday. It's going to be really fun. Um, and they're spread out all over the state in different organizations. I'm going to be doing all kinds of cool projects over the summer. I'm sure I'm leaving some stuff out because we have so many programs that we're running, but those are the, the big ones right now that I can share with you that I'm thinking hard about because we are in recruitment mode. I think that what you're describing is so interesting and important because we think about leadership just as a as a, a huge looming topic. And there's some, I've, I've actually heard people in leadership who, have I, who I've interviewed um, who have said, you know, there's a secret sauce and we're all looking for the secret sauce. And when I think about that, I'm like, but aren't there lots of sauces? And they're probably not that secret. It, I mean, it really doesn't, it depend somewhat on t context. I mean, there are some overarching things that I think many people should know if they're going to be leaders. And also, if you're a nurse or a nurse leader, it's gonna look different than if you're working at Spurwink. And I mean, you're, it's the groups that you're a part of, it's how your kind of the power structure is laid out, it's your educational background. So the fact that the Hanley Center is making all these different types of opportunities available to people is really important. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I know I've drank the Kool-Aid, but um, you, there's so much happening in healthcare and there's so much change, not just because of the pandemic, but the pandemic certainly increased, ramped up the volume and the 
um, the quickness of the changes coming at folks that you need skilled leaders. You you need people that have the tools in their tool belt that know how to handle and implement change. And some people think leaders are born, you know, I was born leader. And I, I agree that some people are born with some excellent skills and some balance and some diplomacy, and they have some of this natural, um, I don't know, a natural ability for people to follow them. But that does not mean you're a great leader. It just means you have that natural ability. There are a lot of theories and skills um, that people need to learn and understand to be able to implement change and, and move forward. There's so much going on in healthcare right now, and health equity is such a new issue. It's not a new issue, but it's a new issue for the world. The world all of a sudden is thinking about health equity. Hanley's been thinking about it for 20 years. We've been training on it for most of our ex- existence. But the world has now come to understand how important it is to think about all the different communities and making sure care is equitably delivered, right? And um, and talking about that and talking about the importance of mitigating what are social determinants of health, impacting people based on their zip code and where they live and you know where they work and play. Um, all those things are so important. You need strong leaders for that. And I think that's why it's so important that we're out there um, because medical school and nursing school don't teach you how to be leaders. They give you great clinical skills. And what happens, as you know, is great doctors, great nurses, great social workers, doesn't matter your industry, they get it put into these supervisory and leadership roles because they're good at their clinical work. And then they get there and they're leading teams and projects and budgets and they have no idea about how to do it well. And so that's where we come in, really help give them those skills and the tools that they need. Well, I, I'm glad to know that Hanley was thinking about social determinants of health from the beginning because as a family doctor, I mean, our profession certainly was thinking about social determinants of health. I know the pediatricians and other primary care specialties were thinking about social determinants of health. It is really interesting that as a result of the pandemic, it's like all of a sudden we're thinking about this, but we're not. I mean, I think anybody that practices clinically or really does anything, if you're on you know, the school committee, for example, you always have to be thinking about the context, the ecosystem, you know, the impacts of things that are... Um, that make it possible for people to be healthy or to learn. And and sometimes it has nothing to do with the space that they're actually in while they're learning or while they're gaining healthcare, I guess. No, it has to do with the barriers that may exist that you don't see and the things that keep them from being able to stay healthy, you know, and the, the adverse experiences they've had across their lives that cause them to be in a situation that's not going to help them, you know, thrive. And I think that's really important. And that's that's what we do at Hanley. We, you know, we run all these courses, but we also, when we're when we are lucky enough to get some grant work, um, we do work in health equity and um, trying to help people mitigate differences, mitigate the challenges that they have and the, what they experience in healthcare. So those are really important pieces to us at the Hanley Center. That's why we teach about it in every one of our courses. Um, and uh, there's. It's like leadership is a journey and no one has ever drunk all the Kool-Aid or had all the secret sauce. You have to keep trying different sauces because you keep evolving. And I think that's an important thing for everyone to remember. No one at any point in time can just say, well, now I'm a leader. You, you're, you're never really evolved completely. Or you just recognize that being a leader just means that you will continue evolving and you will continue learning. And uh, most importantly, part of learning is maybe not doing it exactly the way that it would be optimal the first time around. Right, right. You got to try a few things. Yes. Sometimes failure is okay because you learn, take a different direction. Yes, I think that's true. 
It's also interesting to me because, um, I mean, you talked about being the only female attorney at a construction firm. You know, when I went into medicine, even though half of my medical school class were female, um, that was not the leadership structure. And it still is not. I mean, we have across the country only 15 percent of the higher level kind of executive level leaders are women. And that's just women. We're not talking about minorities. We're not talking about people who have different backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. And here in the state of Maine, on the list of names of these higher level leaders, we're at 11 percent. In my organization, I'm one of three at the chief medical officer level. And I'm a woman. So I guess that gives us 33%. So we're kind of ahead, right? (laughs) But it's a, it's a thing, you know, you and I, we are not that far away from not having anybody around who kind of looks like us to now we don't have people, we don't have enough leaders who are actually leading the people. There's plenty of women, but don't we need more women doing this work? Don't, don't we need more people who are not white middle-aged males? We do. And what's interesting is that Um, especially for our interprofessional course, where we get a lot of um, administrative healthcare leaders coming through and some physicians, it's mostly women, which is really cool to me to see. It is mostly women. We usually have out of 30 or 35 people, we might have six, eight eight men, but it's mostly women leaders who are are ascending into this class, which I love. Um, You're right. And I think Sometimes I put, I think I have blinders on, but when you look around the state, I'm always so proud of people who have made it to those CEO level positions like Lois Skillings, who just retired at Midcoast. You know, um, there's a woman who's running the hospital up, up, um, I think in Washington County. And there's, it's just phenomenal that they've made it to the CEO level and um, was a woman CEO up at Cary Medical Center in Aristic County, but there's not enough. I agree with you hundred percent. And I do hope that'll change. I do hope organizations like us will um, provide what women need to feel like they have the confidence and the skills to push forward into those positions. And I should say, I mean, I'm, I'm married to a middle-aged white male and I value him and his leadership skills. You As know, am I, I. <laughs> I, so, I mean, I have no, and I, and the one people that I work with who happen to have those characteristics, there's nothing that I have to, that's bad to say about that. I'm just saying, you know, like, like, let's make the table a little bigger. Let's invite a few more people. Let's start to have more of a conversation and let's, and let's stop just assigning characteristics based on, um, you know, sex assigned at birth. I mean, I, I've, I've now been in multiple conversations where somebody said, oh, well, that person is a woman doctor, so of course she has to act that way. I'm like, but what does that mean? Like, if you're a female leader, do you have to, I don't know, have a harder edge? Do you have to be more defensive? Like, why do we have to make it a gender thing exactly? Or why do we, why are we the nurturing leaders that are going to take care of our, you know, the, bring the cookies in for you know, the board meeting, like, why does that have to be? It's a great question. And that is something we talk a lot about in the women in health leadership seminar series. It's, we really delve into what are those stereotypes and, and how can we break out of those stereotypes or use what is unique about women to our advantage, um, in leadership. So that's, it's an important conversation for sure to have. And it's hard. It's really hard. I remember when I was um, starting to join different kinds of boards when I was at Spurwink and I was sitting in on lots of different senior level leaders. I was typically one of two or three women around a table of 15 men. And uh, and I took years to even want to speak at those meetings. I was, I was really having a hard time um, with putting forward my thoughts. It took me years to feel comfortable with that. So I totally get it. 
Yeah. And I think, I mean, what, so, so that's an important point, right? So even inviting people to the table and saying, well, you're here, we're letting you speak, let as if let is the word, but I mean, that's, it's not enough. You, there actually has to be the ability to draw people into the space and say, Judy Ann, tell me what you think about this. And right. I don't know that everybody has sort of even the leadership and facilitative capacity to understand that that is necessary. You, you can't just put people there and expect that they're going to feel comfortable enough sharing Correct. their voice. Yeah, so true. So true. You have to create that safe space, that safe environment for everyone to feel like they can add to the conversation. And um, unfortunately, that just doesn't happen around every leadership table. Well, I, I should say that not only is our reti- now retired CEO from our health system, but our incoming CEO, I, I, I have only good things to say about our leadership structure. So I feel like I'm actually really spoiled, but I do know that it continues to exist in other places. And I think it, you know, I'm, I think you know that I, I have my MBA in leadership. I'm, I'm almost done my doctorate in leadership. And I'm even astounded by the fact that, you know, it all begins with the great man theory that not only were the great men, the ones that were born with these leadership skills, and it was typically in a military setting. And, but also the studies that are initially done were that tall men were actually the best leaders. So our studies of leadership that go back, you know, 150 years or something are all founded on something that is a fundamentally flawed presupposition. Yeah, no doubt. I haven't seen the one about the tall men. That's interesting. <laughs> well, I, I only know this because I am a tall woman and apparently it, there's no relationship. So that doesn't help me in any way. It doesn't help you to be I'm a tall sorry. woman. I know. It's okay. It helps me to get stuff off the top shelf. So, you know, I'll take it either way. But I think the other thing that I'm, you know, we've talked about kind of skills, but one of the things that I really enjoyed learning about when I was at Hanley in the physician section was kind of subject matter and some of the basic stuff that I don't think a lot of doctors do have access to. So you brought in people who discussed, you know, economics and policy and finance. And I think that's really eye-opening because as doctors and clinicians, we're taught to be really good at knowing stuff about health, but we don't necessarily know stuff about all the things that go into delivering health care. Yeah, the, the course is, is really, it's very broad. And most of our courses are, we try to bring in all the different components. And we think about the course as talking about the science of medicine. And the science of medicine includes all the inputs. And the inputs are the policy, right? The laws, the policies, um, federal, state and local that under which you practice as a physician and under which we receive care as patients. Um, and it includes ha- having to understand what is going on in the big picture of healthcare economics. That's such an important piece of it. And and it is always astounding to me how um, how much physicians appreciate that session in particular. They, they learn a lot about the healthcare economics and it's very eye-opening. Um, how to create value in healthcare and all of those um, you know, extraneous people might think sessions are actually really important pieces for everyone, including the one on health equity and strategies to mitigate it, to mitigate the inequities that we have. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Well, I mean, I was really struck by one of the sessions that we had, and you probably remember this, where we had people who were brought in from insurance companies and for other, (laughs) from other, maybe not so popular um, fields and how incensed people in our group really got because they they just felt like 
you know, they're trying to do the best they can for their patients. And the perception is that maybe other people are, are taking advantage. And I, I think it's hard when you're a clinician because we really just need to understand where other people are coming from. But I think our immediate response is one of like, but why is it this way? Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting session. And part of what I usually talk about when I'm talking about the Hanley Center and what we do and what you, the outcome of all of our courses is broaden the perspective. And I think that that's a really important piece. And that session in particular is meant to do that, really broaden your perspective. We brought in three individuals who work in carrier situations or in advocacy for uh, employer groups, right? And um, and from the doctor's standpoint, they're just holding up things, right? They're putting up all these prior authorization requirements. They're, they're denying claims. And I sit on the board of Community Health Options, which is, you know, a health insurance company. And that CEO was, you know, Kevin was there at that session. And um, you know, good people running community health options, doing the best they can, trying to improve the health of Maine, but within the parameters of the health insurance industry. <laughs> um, and there's a, there's a perspective there to learn about. So I think it's sometimes you just, that is a learning experience about building the perspective and understanding that everyone has a reason for the reason they do their job and how they do it and trying to have that conversation in a way that is productive um, as opposed to, you know, polarized. And I think our, our session that time became a little bit heated. You're right. Um, but I think in the end, I think everyone understood and appreciated that those guys were coming into a room they knew could be a little bit challenging for them, but they were there to say, this is, this is who we are. This is how we're trying to help provide the best services for patients in Maine as insurance companies. Cause they're, they're all doing this. They're all working toward that. Um, and especially community health options is not a big national company. So they're a nonprofit. <laughs> so... Well, and I think that that is a huge leadership lesson is, is that there are always going to be stakeholder groups. And if you remain part of a stakeholder group, then you, you, you will never evolve a situation to the next level. I think that the stakeholder groups all do have to understand each other and they may not like the other people's mission and vision, but you, you do actually have to kind of co-create and co-generate, you know, the next step. And if you immediately shut down and say, well, I'm going to remain over here with my group and I'm not going to be open to how other people are experiencing this, it just kind of, it's not a bad thing. It just kind of limits how far you can actually move. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the, the basic tenets of our HLD course is about collaboration. And we spend a whole lot of time talking about what true collaboration is. And some people think about coordination and cooperation, and those are not true collaboration, which takes time where you build trust in a relationship and you start each giving into the other to benefit the other before you get to a point of mutual benefit and really working together. And um, in a situation like that, we're just having a session, it's hard to build those relationships, but that's why we do what we do. Our idea is that we have a statewide network of leaders that are now across Maine in all of our courses who have had a little bit of the Hanley sauce. And we know that if you were as an alum were to call up any other alum in another class and say, I was in this Hanley class, they will talk to you. They will work with you. Um, they will want to help because they're all part of the same network, had similar training. And we believe that a strong networked group of healthcare professionals will help move this state forward. And our, our alumni are in all the leadership tables around the state, and they've ascended into those because of the skills that they have. So I think you're right. I think... Um, Collaboration is so important and you can't possibly move anything forward if you're not building a long-term trusting relationship with your stakeholder groups. And at the same time, admittedly, it's not easy. And no. especially as a physician, I mean, to our great credit, I mean, we are 
wonderful champions for, hopefully, for our patients, for our colleagues, for our other people that we work with. So absolutely, we feel like we want to we be the advocates. And so there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But on a regular basis, what I see in my organization as I'm bringing people forward in leadership is that they have to find a way to be a both and. They have to be able to say, okay, yes, I'm a family doctor. I'm a practice medical director. I'm a service line director. And also, what what does the larger institution need to be doing? And what does the larger con- context of healthcare need to be doing? And that's, and that's very hard because it really speaks to, at least with physicians, like a very core identity that we all hold. I think it's important for every physician to figure out where they can insert themselves in that way. There's a place for every physician leader to think about the difference they want to make and the passion they have inside of themselves and figure out how to insert themselves in whether it's an advocacy way or not. Um, but there's a place for everybody that wants to be making a difference. And I, I appreciate that so much about the physicians that come through our courses. It's somewhat of a self-selected group. I mean, you all come to this because you want to make a difference. You're so passionate, you're so smart, um, and you're so dedicated. And that's why you want to learn more. And a lot of people would think we went through medical school, residency, all these fellowships. What the heck do you want to go to another class for? But these are the folks that self-select and take our courses because they're going to be the rock stars. Yeah. And to be clear, I have no problem with people whose primary goal is always going to be advocacy. And that's a different and that's leadership. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just um, it kind of kind of depends upon which direction you go in with exactly as you've said, like what what is my niche? You know, what is my place in all of this? So I also really love the fact that this is the Daniel Hanley Center for Health Leadership. And it isn't specific to, okay, we're only going to have doctors do it. You know, we're only going to have this particular group. You're actually seeking to strengthen the entire leadership team, both in and out of institutions and across the state, really. Right, right. We have courses for advanced practice providers. That's the one I left out, the PAs and the NPs of the world. Our in a professional course, it's such a cool class. We get we get um, physical therapists, healthcare architects, healthcare attorneys and policy people, people from the state, CMS or main care. Um, we get nurses and NPs and doctors and so- social workers and psychiatrists, um, finance people, HR people, anybody in healthcare um, can apply to be in that course. And that's what makes it so rich because the perspective building there is pretty astounding um, and what they learn from one another. I remember learning so much about hospitals. You know, when you work in the siloed mental health of the, I would say, of the early 2000s, late 90s, it was very siloed in mental health and the brain was thought not to be connected to the rest of the body. <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. And that has thankfully changed. Um, But now, you know, I learned so much then because I didn't understand how hospitals ran. You thought about the hospitals in a certain way. You thought about long-term care and elderly care in a certain way. And the folks in my class were working in those arenas and they taught me so much. It was just an amazing experience um, that I I wish everybody could have. Well, and that's, that's kind of where we all need to get to. And it's not even within health per se. It is working with people who have a, have an interest in health really across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the classes that I've taken in, in both of my additional degrees, uh, a lot of the people are teachers. So I'm learning things from them that I'm like, oh, I had no idea that 
I don't know, that you have a mitten closet at your school because you have children on a regular basis who come on, come in in a snowstorm and have nothing to put on their hands and that they are called to also be frontline workers and to feed these children and to put mittens on their hands mm-hmm. and to, you know, bring them, send them home with a bag of clothes. And so I think understanding where we each are doing really good work and really important things that impact health is, I think it's going to make us feel a lot more hopeful about possibly where we can eventually get to. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Back when I, before I um, started at Hanley, right after I took my Hanley course, um, Hanley offered some other kinds of volunteer opportunities. And I took, um, I took an opportunity which allowed me to develop a uh, proposal for Maine. It didn't. It hasn't flown anywhere yet, but I've presented it to a few governors, and it was all about coalition building, like you're talking about. It was to um, end stigma in mental health, and so it brought together um, the police, the educators, the employer market, um, the the healthcare people for sure, um, just like all different parts and different sectors of our environment that all have a stake in what to deal with. The churches were involved to deal with um, mitigating stigma in healthcare so that folks came forward and got the services they needed. I think that's what you're saying is so important that it's we, we shouldn't stay in our silo either in healthcare. We need to broaden it and think outside. Well, I, I think the time might be right for your your initiative because I think people are finally starting to come around to exactly what you're describing and we're finally seeing Um, And maybe sadly, it's because of COVID and the impact of COVID on mental health. But I think we're finally, um, there's some light at the end of this, what has been, I think, a very dark tunnel for a very long time. It has been. So do you you know the governor now? Can you bring this forward to her? (laughs) I know the governor's sister pretty well. Oh, there you go. So maybe maybe this is the opportunity. Because sometimes it is a timing, right? Sometimes if you look at the change management, change leadership spectrum, none of this happens overnight anyway. No, no, for sure. I, I, I joke sometimes when I get back to the state house and I look around and I see the same folks wearing the same suits, having some of the same conversations that I think it's a little bit soap opera like. I mean, things have changed, things have gotten better, but it's such slow incremental change that with eight years at Hanley, some of the same conversations are still in place and they haven't really moved the ball very far forward. And that's that's just that's just policy work. It's not mean. It's not saying that these folks are doing a bad job. It's just policy work is slow, incremental change in order to bring people together and come up with consensus because you can't make a big change and get consensus at the same time. It just doesn't happen. And I think this is one of the reasons why I was so interested to have the opportunity to speak with you in this setting, because I know that you and I have had sort of parallel professional lives over time. And we also have children that are the same age that have gone to school together. So I think about the educational experience of my children going through and likely a parallel educational experience for your children. And again, the context is so different from when we were going through. And so how do we help people understand how far we've come and how we get even further? And to me, that's intensely personal because I'm talking about my own kids. I've seen, I mean, I think there's been a difference in our children's experience just across my three children. When I look at their experiences at Yarmouth High School from my son, Mike, who's 28 now, to my daughter, Lindsay, um, who's the youngest, um, who's 21, and then Abby in the middle, each one of them had a very different experience based on what was going on in the universe, how much were phones implemented, social media, all the different things that, right, that are changing just for their little world here at um, Yarmouth High School. As I was even talking, I was having that same thought because my kids also span somewhat of an age range. And and it is true that from, it, 
so much can be different even in five, seven, ten years. And that for me is another important point is I was at the main hospital association and they were talking about generational um I guess, interdependency, let's call it. Because I think there often we can say, well, why did this, does this millennial group um, act this way? And we can easily kind of paste on characteristics that may or may not be valid. I think the larger point is, is exactly what this particular speaker was saying, which is, hey, everybody grew up in a slightly different time frame and understanding where people are coming from so that you don't just say, oh, that person's a Karen in a really insulting way or, you know, go away boomer or something again like why do that it's not going to actually get you any further so i feel like coming to the hanley center and talking with other leaders regardless of their age is really just an opportunity to kind of say okay so where's this person coming from and how do i get to know them better and how can we actually come to a place of somewhat uh, cohesiveness so that we can move forward yeah yeah it's it's so important in the state, and we think about the the new Mainers that are here. I mean, that's the place where we can all start is to try and understand other people and try to understand different cultures. And that's sort of you know what you're talking about is how do we get to know people without labeling them or making these assumptions? And that's on every one of us. That's the burden we all have to make sure that we're stopping ourselves. And before something comes out of our mouth, before the thought hits the air, to stop ourselves and think. Is this what I really want to say? Or do I really understand this person? Do I really understand their their space in the world and what they've been through? So you don't create more discord. Yes, yeah, so there's an old saying about having two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think about that a lot yeah. in my own life is, okay, since I probably don't know a lot about everything, and in fact, I've, I've over time realized I know very little about most things. I, I'm like, oh, I think I'm just going to sit and listen. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think I, I'm probably going to be better off. And I am frequently surprised by what I find. And I've really enjoyed spending time with you today, Judy Ann. Me too. This has been great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you. And thank you for the work that you do for the Hanley Center. Thank you. How can people find out about the Daniel Hanley Center for Health Leadership? Go to our website, um, hanleyleadership.org, and everything is right there for you. Um, and if you want to get in touch with me, my information is there as well. So I'd be happy to take any inquiries um, from people in and outside of healthcare. Very good. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. I've been speaking with Judy Ann Smith. She is the executive director of the Daniel Hanley Center for Health Leadership. And as an alum, I can certainly attest to the importance of the work they are doing and the manner in which they are offering this information. So please do go out and uh, learn a little bit more and perhaps sign up for a class. And thank you very much for uh, all everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you.